a couple of announcements. I think um, we have, since we had to cancel the church picnic because of weather, uh, we decided at the last uh, board meeting that we would have a church Thanksgiving meal the Sunday before Thanksgiving, immediately following the uh, morning worship service. So we'll have sign-up sheets out in the back and everything, and and uh, as we get that organized, you'll get get more information. But that'll be a great opportunity for the churches to come together, and also give thanks for how God has blessed us over the over the previous year. So have that on your calendar. I think, um, uh, and then also in November, I can't remember the date. Alan, do you have the date on top of your head for the when we're going to do the uh, uh, men's prayer breakfast? Is that the sixteenth? Yeah, 16th, right, November the 16th for the men's men's prayer breakfast. So that should go well. I just got back this uh, afternoon from a couple of interesting days. I was invited by the uh, Israeli consul general here to attend a sem- uh, seminar in, at the University of Texas on the occasion of the uh, 40th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And so um, went over there yesterday, managed to get an invitation for uh, Tommy Ice as well, <clears throat> and we had a front front row seats. There were maybe 70, 80 people in there, and it was it was really interesting. Of course, like most academic symposium, some of you haven't been to pre-trib, don't get this. I work against this when we have our Chafer conference because I ask those guys to write papers but not to read them. In academic symposiums of this nature, they, a professor or a presenter will get up and simply read his paper to the, to the audience. And most of you are going, oh, that's so boring. Yeah, but this is, this is normative in academia. And it does get a little rough, especially when they have a heavy Hebrew accent. And sometimes they have them projected on the paper and up on the screen. And the first guy that gave a presentation didn't realize he actually had to have his paper under the square light. He had the first two lines were under the square light. So that was all that was projected. So you had a hard time understanding him and you couldn't even read, read along with him. So it was a little exciting. Tommy leaned over to me and he said, people think that pre-trib is rugged. Because they didn't even have breaks between the presentations. So you just had to get up and go find, and they didn't have coffee or anything. So it was, uh, it was a little Spartan, but it was, uh, it was interesting. And, uh, uh, if you're interested in finding out or watching that, I don't know when they'll be up, but they recorded all of those papers and they're going to be up on the University of Texas, uh, YouTube channel website. I had no idea. So that was, uh, that was how I spent yesterday and today and then drove back from Austin this, this, uh, uh, this afternoon. So that was just to fill in more gaps of, uh, related to, uh, general, uh, general knowledge. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, to make sure we're ready to study the Word. Scripture teaches that we are to walk by the Spirit, but when we sin, we're out of fellowship. And the way to recover is simply to uh, pray to God, to admit, to acknowledge our sins to Him, and He faithfully forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we begin uh, all of our classes with a, a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer, and let's bow our heads together and go to the throne of grace. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have access to your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And therefore, he opened the door, he removed the veil, he provided the one and only way to have access to you because only on the basis of uh, paid sin and our redemption can we have access to you. Father, we're thankful for your grace in our lives, for the way you provide so much for us, for the many blessings that you've given each one of us, for the fact that we have your word to teach us that no matter how calamitous or chaotic things may appear in the world, that we have a solid rock upon which to uh, anchor ourselves and that you always provide what we need in order to survive to accomplish your will. Now, fathers, we study your word this evening. We pray that you might encourage us and strengthen us in our study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, continuing our study on Paul's third missionary journey. We're coming towards the end of the journey. There are two basic episodes uh, left to cover in Acts 20. The first is what I refer to as the uh, case of the drowsy disciple. Uh, Every pastor knows that there are few people who fall asleep while he teaches, uh, many people today just work, all, as I've said before, they work all day, they get up at 5 a.m. like I was this morning, and they're up all day, and the first time they have a chance to sit down and take a breath is in Bible class, and they just go right to sleep. So I don't have any problem with that. I'm very, very understanding. If the drone of my voice is such that you get a good hour sleep, then that at least you get something out of Bible class, not like Eutychus who fell out of a third-floor window and died. So that's the first episode we look at. And the second episode is as Paul continues on his journey back towards Jerusalem, uh, rather than taking the time to travel to Ephesus and address the leaders of the church there, he has them come to meet him in Miletus, which is at least a good long day's walk. So these are the peripatetic presbyters. So two episodes, the drowsy disciple and the peripatetic presbyters. Here we are giving us a map to uh, orient to western Turkey, modern western Turkey, which was Asia. The, this, most of this area here is the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. And Paul, at the beginning of this, is going to be up here in Troas. 
This is where he is teaching the church there in Troas, and this is where Eutychus, a young man, uh, falls asleep in the middle of Bible class. Uh, Paul has, this gives you a route map. He has, uh, originally he came from uh, Jerusalem, visited the church in Antioch, revisited the churches he uh, had planted on his first missionary journey in southern Galatia, and then he came to Ephesus, spending two and a half years in Ephesus. He then left and retraced his steps from the second missionary journey, uh, go, went up to Troas, crossed over to uh, the port at uh, Neapolis, visited the churches in uh, Philippi, and all through Macedonia. He may even have gone as far as uh, ancient Illyricum, which is in the area of what was Yugoslavia, the area of the Balkan states, uh, before he uh, wintered back in uh, Achaia, down in Corinth. He spent uh, this, uh, the winter months in Corinth from which, and somewhere along that route, maybe when he was in Corinth is when he wrote the epistle uh, to the Romans. Along the, during this journey, he also wrote... Um, he also wrote Second Second Corinthians earlier. Uh, he had written written First Corinthians. So we read that he's got a group of men, an entourage accompanying him. Uh, some eight men, including Luke, the author of the uh, uh, of Acts. And we went through this list last time, and they were men who came from different regions. A couple of them may have had a Jewish background. Some of them, the rest were all Gentile. They came from areas in Macedonia, Achaia, as well as Asia in, uh, in uh, what we call Turkey today. And they were sailing, headed for Israel, because it was, uh, it was Paul's desire to, to be in Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost, which comes 50 days after, uh, after Passover. Passover is one day, but the first day of Pesach, or Passover, is the first, uh, is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day uh, period in, uh, according to the Jewish holy calendar. So they are, he's celebrated Passover and unleavened bread in uh, Philippi, and then he's headed back to Jerusalem. So he's going to make it for uh, Pentecost, so he has 50 days or seven weeks in order to, to make this journey. And what we get starting in verse 7 is that uh, he begins, or starting in verse 7, is he stops along the way uh, two times that Luke tells us about, he stops along the way in order to uh, encourage and teach and strengthen the disciples. What we see in this chapter is an example of Paul's uh, pastoral ministry. A pastor doesn't do anything different from an apostle other than an apostle had authority, was a limited gift to the first century. It was limited to those who were directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, those who had been witnesses of the resurrection, and that apostles had an authority over all of all the churches. They were had a had that form of ministry. Whereas a pastor has authority over a local church, 
But in terms of much of their function, they did the same thing, which we'll see in this chapter is defined by at least seven different or six different verbs in this chapter, one more that's used also in Acts that we'll look at, which give us an understanding of how the Bible views the pastoral ministry. We have a lot of different churches. We have a lot of, in America today, we have a lot of different backgrounds. We have a lot of different uh, cultures represented by different traditions. We have things like Swedish Lutheran and German Lutheran. You have, and when these state church groups came over to the United States in the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, into an environment where we didn't have a state church, often they would then uh, split up into separate denominations. So you might have initially Presbyterian, Baptist, uh, Methodist, and then over a course of time they fragmented into uh, different uh, other different denominations. Of course, the major event that caused the the, the largest splits in the denominations was the uh, war between the states. And prior to that, because of the slavery issue. The Methodist Church split into Northern and Southern uh, Methodism. The Presbyterian Church split into Northern and Southern uh, uh, Presbyterian. You had the Baptist split into Northern and Southern. And then because of the influx of liberalism, 19th century Protestant liberal theology, which denied the authority of Scripture, denied the reality of supernatural events, denied that God actually intervened in human history, denied the historicity of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, denied the virgin birth, denied miracles. This all characterized 19th century religious liberalism as that began to infiltrate the pulpits of of American churches, it was primarily, is that somebody's car alarm going off out there? Every every now and then if I sit wrong, I hit the button on my car, but Alan's checking on it, and I'll be sitting there, and all of a sudden I hear my car in the garage beeping and uh, realize it's me. <sighs> anyway, as these, as these denominations uh, fragmented over liberalism, uh, the conservatives would peel out of the northern branches. Is it one of, do you know which car it is? Do you know what color it is? Dark. Dark? Is that you, John? Okay. <clears throat> All right. So as you had this influx of liberal theology that came in, the conservatives in those in those different denominations would then leave and they would establish a separate denomination. And so you had, uh, for example, among the Northern Baptists in the 20s and 30s, you had several different groups that would leave every two or three years. This was the origin of what one association that became known as the Conservative Baptist Association. Another one became known as the Regular Baptist Association, and uh, these became conservative denominations. Southern Baptists stayed true to the authority of Scripture and managed to uh, managed to make it through a battle for the Bible in the 70s and 80s, and have pretty much 
in many ways returned to the authority of Scripture, at least as they were losing their seminary. So the same thing happened among the Lutherans. It happened among the Presbyterians. The major denominations all managed to reunite during the post-World War II period so that that's why you have the United Methodist and the United Presbyterian and the United Church of Christ is because they were united after having been split over the slavery issue in the mid-19th um, in the mid-19th century. And all of these different groups have different views of pastoral ministry. Some of them are churches that have an emphasis on high church liturgy, and so they're much more formal. That's why they're called, they're called high church as opposed to low church. We're low church, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Um, low church is just, it's more informal, uh, it doesn't have a lot of uh, liturgy, a lot of uh, formal uh, dress, robes, uh, clerical garments, things of that nature. And so that's, that's, uh, that's how you see the difference uh, between those two different forms of worship. You also have another type of church that is based on more of a, an ecclesiastical uh, polity or the way in which they organize themselves, and it's called an Episcopal form of government. That's not to be confused with the Episcopal denomination. The Episcopal denomination has an Episcopal form of government, but they got that because they were the American version of the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church has as its head the king or queen of England, this presented just a wee little problem in 1776 when you had a number of Anglican congregations here who had sworn loyalty to the head of the Anglican church, which was King George. And yet when you had the uh, Declaration of Independence, it created a wee bit of a problem, so they established uh, themselves as a separate denomination. They broke with the Mother Anglican Church in England, and they became re, uh, they, they known as an Episcopal, uh, an Episcopal Church. You had a an, a black denomination form related to that, and that became known as an A.M.E. Church or African Methodist Episcopal Church. The Methodist Church also came out of an Anglican background uh, under the leadership of men like George Whitfield, John Wesley, and Charles Wesley after the Second Great Awakening in the 1740s, 1750s, 1760s, and they still held to a certain form of Episcopal government. In Episcopal government, uh, you have various uh, hierarchies beyond the government of the local church, so that you may have several local churches that have a, in their terminology, they have a priest or pastor, and then above that you may have a a, a group of, of churches that are associated together and in a, in, and then they are overseen by a bishop so that they, this idea of a, of a ruling bishop that is different from the pastor really has its roots back into the second century and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But they have one view of the pastoral ministry, and even within those denominations, there are some there are some distinctions uh, due to things that happened historically in the United States. You have within the Presbyterian Church, there was always an emphasis on having an educated clergy, 
And it's, I'm just appalled today when I look at what goes on in American evangelicalism because we no longer appreciate the value of education. What made America great was great pulpits. And they were great pulpits because the men in the pulpits were highly educated. And even the circuit riders, you look at the Methodist circuit riders in the 19th century who were going out through the West and were traveling from one small settlement to another small settlement, and they had a Greek New Testament and many times a Hebrew Old Testament in their saddlebags. And they could read them, and they could preach from them, and they had men in the congregations who were educated who could sight-read Latin and Greek and Hebrew. And so pastors were educated and communicating to an educated congregation. And today in the early 20th century, we think we're so smart because we can use a computer to answer anything. But back then, they had a computer to answer everything, and it was between their ears. And they had a high high level of education and a value for education. And you didn't have to just have the call of Jesus to get in the pulpit. You had to actually be educated. And this wasn't that long ago. When I pastored my first church, which was down in Lamarck, Texas, there was the, the former a former pastor who was at by that time retired, had been retired for about 12 years, um, very interesting uh elderly man, he was about 78 at the time, sat down third row back and was there all the time. He was very interesting to talk to. He had done his undergraduate work at Moody Bible Institute, and he did his uh, his seminary training at Austin Presbyterian Seminary. Austin Presbyterian Seminary, this is your night for history. Austin Presbyterian Seminary used to be located just off of the UT campus, some of you may remember that. I think they sold their buildings in the mid-'80s, and I'm not sure where they went. I know they sold off a lot of their library, and my friend Tommy Ice has a few of those books because he was living in Austin at the time. But Austin Presbyterian Seminary was founded by one of the great Southern uh, Presbyterian theologians by the name of Robert Louis Dabney, who uh, had also been Stonewall Jackson's chief of staff, uh, when Jackson was uh, uh, a gen- was still alive in general uh, in the uh, S- Southern Army prior to his death at uh, was that Chancellorsville, yeah, and um, so that was that after the war, Dabney came to Texas, went to Austin, and founded that seminary. Well, when Harry Birch, that was a retired pastor in my first church, when Harry Birch was ordained. He had to pass sight-reading exams in Hebrew and Greek. He had to answer exegetical questions from his ordaining council in order to make sure he could accurately exegete and understand the text. He wasn't required to simply be able to regurgitate memorized answers on theology. He had to demonstrate that he could, on the fly, exegete Greek and Hebrew, or he wasn't going to get ordained. And those are the kind of standards that made American pulpits great, and those are the kind of standards that we no longer have today. And this is a tragedy in America because we have dumbed down the pulpit so much. And pastors, a congregation cannot grow beyond the level of the teaching that they that they get. If you send your kids to school 
and they finish the curriculum and pass the curriculum in the second grade, you don't continue to teach them at a second grade level because they will never advance beyond the second grade. They need to constantly be exposed to more advanced information so that they can grow and mature and increase in their knowledge and understanding. The same is true for a congregation, except we're more like a one-room schoolhouse. The pastor needs to teach people that are at every level of spiritual growth, from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And one of the things I've observed, not having grown up in a family with older siblings since I'm an only child, uh, one of the things I've noticed in observing other families is when you have um, a fairly, when you have a an older child, and then they're just a couple of years younger than their next next-in-line sibling, that next-in-line sibling wants to keep up with the older brother or sister, and that older brother and sister often pulls them up with them so that they are doing the same thing, playing the same games, and that helps those younger kids advance to the level of their older siblings. That's the kind of thing that would take place in a one-room schoolhouse. As the older kids are taught, the younger ones would start to hear it, and it would have an overflow effect. That's what happens in a local church. Some people come in today because we're so spiritually and academically lazy, and they hear a message that seems to be a little bit over their head, so they go down the street to, to uh, the first Metho-Presbyterian church where they're going to get 45 minutes of emotional feel-good, and they're not going to learn anything, but they're not going to be challenged either or feel like somehow they don't know enough. Well, every day I discover through my study that I really don't know enough, and I need to learn a whole lot more. And anybody who is going to advance in any field, whether it's your your career, whether it's your hobby, or whether it's in your spiritual life, you have to have somebody usually pushing you uh, in a certain direction in order to grow. You have to have some motivation and somebody who knows a whole lot more than you do to, to, to help spur you on so that you can learn and grow and advance in whatever that field of knowledge is. And that's the role of the pastor. The pastor's role, as we see in this chapter, is not to hold hands, not to give everybody, not that these things are wrong. Um, nobody in this church loves a good hug more than I do. But that's not going to get me through the hard times. When I'm home at night and facing difficulties, stress, challenges in my life, and you close your eyes to go to sleep, what gets you through that aren't the little choruses that you sing at church. What gets you through that aren't the warm fuzzies that everybody gives you at church. What gets you through that are the promises of God and the doctrine that's in your soul. And so the way you learn that, the way we learn that is through the teaching, communication of God's word, which is what we see in this particular passage. And it's a recognition that these things are not, do not necessarily come easily or quickly. It's, it's very disconcerting today to hear comments from educators that I hear these little throwaway lines that they're trying to teach some group or expose some group. I heard this the other day. Uh, on a talk show, and I think I was listening to Michael Berry, and he said he wanted to play a, a uh, five-minute clip from Bum Phillips. Bum Phillips was a well-known coach of the Houston Oilers, and that this was a, a, a tremendous uh, message that, that Bum Phillips had given, and he wanted people to hear it. But he said, sadly, 
we have a younger generation today that if it's not a 15 or 20 or 30 second clip, they won't listen beyond uh, beyond 60 seconds. And uh, I never I was in the car and getting in and out of the car, so I never heard the heard the clip. But that was such a sad thing. But it's true. I keep hearing this from people. It's not that the younger generation doesn't read, but they don't read books. They go out on the Internet and they read these short, quick things here and there, but they don't pick up a six- or seven-hundred-page book and work their way through it. But that's how we learn. That's how we grow, is to have our thinking challenged. And that doesn't mean we understand it the first time. I can't tell you how many books I've read three, four, or five times and still not fully grasp everything that's there. But that's how we learn. We come to Bible class and we, you know, the, 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 the depth of the instruction may be three feet over our head, but, but if you persevere and you stay with it, then the second year you come and the depth may only be two feet over your head. And then the third year may only be a foot over your head, but all of a sudden you realize you're learning things, and it's making it making a difference. It's having an impact on your life. That's how we learn, and that's how we grow. And I say that because we get into this section here. As Paul comes to Troas, uh, he begins to teach uh, this congregation, and we read in verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. In the early church, apparently, they would have a, uh, when they celebrated the Lord's table, they would have an entire meal together. And they, it wasn't, they weren't huge congregations, so they could do that. They would eat, have an entire meal together, and then at the conclusion of the meal, they would have the Lord's table. This grew out of the Passover meal, the Seder meal that uh, was the meal that the Lord, our Lord observed with his disciples the night before he we went to the cross. It was a full meal, and it was elements of that meal which were given new meaning uh, and became part of the two elements of what we observe in the Lord's table. So they would celebrate uh, weekly. Uh, some uh, groups celebrate weekly, some monthly, some quarterly. All Scripture says is that we're to observe it on a regular basis, and as often as we do it, we're to remember the, work, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they would come together on the first day of the week, and Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So if they came together and they had dinner about uh, 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, they would finish up about 9 and follow that up with a three-hour message. Now, that just seems pretty tough for a lot of Americans because we're just pansies now. We don't have the, the mental acumen to hang in there. You go to some places. Now, I'm, I've never been to these places, but I know pastors who have them. They're just floored. They go to Pakistan. They go to India. They go to places in Africa. And if they teach for less than two or three hours, and these are people who've come, in some cases, travel two or three days in order to come to be fed the Word of God. They don't want you to stop after two or three hours. They have their priorities right. They, you, you've come here. I want you to provide me with spiritual nourishment. We'll go until we, we all drop, and then we'll sleep a few hours and start over again. So Paul is it goes until midnight. And then um, we read that there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Now, this is an interesting observation because what happens when you have a lot of small oil lamps burning for light in a, in a closed environment? 
it burns up the oxygen. Burns up the oxygen, people start getting a little drowsy, and that seems to be the scriptural explanation of what happens in verse 9. In a window sat a certain young man, probably 13, 14, 15 years old, certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. I've certainly had... Um, the, yesterday was tough. I, 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 Tommy and I were both having trouble sitting in front of the speaker. And there was a friend of mine who's been on a couple of Israel trips with me who was sitting back about six or seven rows and started sending me text messages about snoring, <laughs> which we weren't doing. But, but she was also on a, the trip last year, and I had forgotten about this. But this first day we were in Israel, and I was really jet-lagged. And we went to an Ethiopian, uh, uh, went to one of the Ethiopian uh, villages where, where they were, um, uh, one of the assimilation villages where they assimilate the Ethiopian Jews into uh, Israeli culture. And I was stuck right in the front row in front of this lady, and there was no way I could stay awake. I mean, I think I, 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 think I embarrassed myself badly there, but uh, by snoring, at least that's what they all said, but... There was no way I could stay awake. I think I slept for a solid 20 minutes while she talked. Anyhow, that's what happened with Eutychus. Every one of us has something like that happen at one time or another. And he's overcome by his sleep. And as Paul continued to speak, he fell down from the third story, just fell out the window, and was taken up dead. And then Paul will go down, as we read in verse 10, uh, fell on him, embraced him, and said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And then when he had come up, everybody's had a little break now, a little excitement. Not only has somebody fallen out of the window, but they've been brought back to life. Uh, they broke bread, and then Paul continued to teach, even until daybreak. Are you all ready? <laughs> we'll be here a while. And then he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Okay, let me. I want to go back and look at a couple of points because this is something that's that's interesting. Many people go to this particular passage to indicate that this is, shows how the early church uh, was already meeting on Sundays uh, in their their worship service. And there's actually a couple of different views, and it's important to understand this. It says on the first day of the week. Now, from a Jewish calendar perspective, the first day of the week is Sunday. But when does the first day of the week begin? first day of the week begins on Saturday night, according to our calendar, because the Jewish day runs from sundown to sundown. So Shabbat, which is the seventh day of the week, Saturday, uh, Sabbath, Shabbat ends about 7 o'clock in the evening on Saturday. And they uh, ha light at the last. The first thing they do to indicate that Shabbat is over with is the Havdalah, which is the lighting of the candle. They don't l light lights on Shabbat because that's the first thing that God did on creation, and He rested after that. So lighting a light is considered work. So that would violate the the Sabbath. Now this translates in a modern society to the fact that you don't want you don't you can't start your car because that's going to create a light. You don't start your computer, that creates a light. You don't uh, get on an elevator because when you press the button, that creates a light. 
And in Israel, they have what, uh, in hotels, they have Shabbat elevators. And on Shabbat, the elevator stops at every floor all the way up and every floor on the way down, so you don't have to light anything. In a Jewish home, you light the candles before sundown, and then they remain lit for light during the, the evening, but you don't uh, turn a light on uh, as you're observing uh, observing Shabbat. So it would, uh, with the lighting of the candle, Shabbat has ended, and so the first day of the week begins at sundown, sundown on what we would uh, what we call Saturday. For us, Sunday doesn't begin until uh, until midnight. So there are those who say that this is not a justification for a Sunday morning church service. Now, there's two things that we need to focus on. There is this a justification for a Sunday service? I think so but it's not a justification for a Sunday morning service because it's taking place at night. I think also this has a special occasion related to it because Paul is leaving the next day. Now, that's an, I've underlined that because it says that they came together the first day of the week, which would be, indicate probably at night, and Paul is going to leave the next day. Okay, so they're meeting at night after after sundown, but he's leaving the next day. This suggests a Roman approach to the calendar, because if uh, if it's if Sunday begins Saturday evening, if that's Sunday night, then the next day is is still uh, would. It's still Sunday. It's not really the next day. It's still Sunday. Think about that. So if if Luke is writing from a Roman perspective, then Saturday night would be what? Saturday night. So they wouldn't be meeting on the first day, would they? See, it gets a little a little confusing. I think the way to solve that is the next day is just an idiom for the next daylight period, which is comes after after nightfall. But in other places, uh, Paul has also. I mean, Luke has used a Roman chronology. For example, in Acts three one, when he says, "Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour." This is nine o'clock in the morning, not three o'clock in the afternoon, or three o'clock in the morning. So, uh, this is Luke seems to use a Roman way of accounting days, and so this really isn't a, an argument for meeting on. Um, on Saturday night, I think they're meeting on Sunday night, according to a Roman calendar. They're meeting the first day of the week, which would be a Sunday. They don't work. They don't meet in the morning. Why? Christianity hasn't changed the culture yet. They don't have a two-day weekend. They're working on Sunday, so they can't meet in the morning because they all have jobs. So I think that what we see here is a meeting on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. The next day is going to be Monday. That's when Paul's going to leave. And it, it overall, it makes better sense there. But they're not meeting uh, in the morning. They meet in the evening because they, they have their jobs and they have to work. They don't have um, – unions have not managed to get them a 40-hour work week yet with Saturday and Sunday off. And so this is, this is what tran- transpires at this particular point. Okay, and then what happens is Paul goes down. 
And in a pattern similar to Elisha and Elijah in the Old Testament, uh, where they each had a case where there was a uh, dead young man and they laid down on top of them and prayed to God to uh, restore life uh, to the individual. So Paul goes down and fell on him and embraces him and then says, don't trouble yourself for life is in him. And at this point there is a uh, restoration of life a resuscitation, not a resurrection, because resurrection implies getting a new body, a resurrection body, but a resuscitation where they were truly dead and God restores life uh, to the individual. Again, this is a miracle which attests to the credentials of Paul as an apostle. And then they went back up and they began to, uh, they ate some more and then they had uh, more Bible study, and Paul taught them for the rest of the evening. And the people were quite happy. In Acts 20.12, we have a double negative to reinforce. This is called a latotes, where you say something sort of in an understatement form with a double negative. They brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted, which means they were greatly comforted. Okay, it's sort of saying it in the opposite in order to stress the, the positive. Okay, then Paul is going to leave uh, Troas the next day, and this is where we get into another bit of a travel log as Luke identifies where they go. Now, this is important because it may seem a little boring to us. Uh, why is all, why is this data in there? And it's there in order to show uh, what was going on. It adds legitimacy and authenticity to Luke's description of of Paul's travel. And we read in verses 13 and 14, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Now, for those of you who are taking the Bible study methods class on Sunday evening, there's one thing that kind of stands out in this verse that you ought to observe. And I often point out that it's the small words that are important. And what we notice here is the use of the first person plural by the author. All of a sudden, we're shifting to a we and an us, indicating that Luke has, again, rejoined the team and is traveling with them. And so they, they've left from, um, from the home the next uh, later on that day. They get on the ship. And they sail to Assos, Paul's entourage. These uh, seven or eight men that are accompanying him get on the ship, but not Paul. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why. And apparently, it's a fairly rugged journey to go from, across the land to, um, to Assos from Troas, but Paul takes the difficult route. Maybe he felt like he needed some exercise after preaching all night. I don't know. But he heads off cross-country to uh, uh, reconnect with them in Assos. And this is what we see. He goes on on foot. This was the mode of travel in the ancient world was walking, not riding a horse, although there were those who had horses and traveled that way, but most people traveled on foot, and the Apostle Paul walked just about everywhere that he went on these journeys. And so he crosses this uh, peninsula here in order to uh, rejoin uh, the, the team. 
And here's a map where we go from Troas and see he cuts across uh, the distance here uh, on Cape Lectum and uh, meets up with them in Assos, whereas they took the ship and went around this way, which was, you know, in the the kind of ships they sailed in, that that close into shore could have been rather rough. Maybe Paul just didn't want to uh, risk it. He uh, faced a, a number of different uh, shipwrecks, and so he took the land route, and then he rejoined them. They're going to go from Assos across to the island of Lesbos here, which was only about um, uh, 20 miles or so, uh, I mean, to, uh, 20 miles or so across uh, this channel to the island, but it's 44 miles uh, to the city of uh, Mytilene, which is the main city on that particular island. Then the next day they travel from there to Chios, and uh, then they travel from there down to uh, Samos. And then finally, after a third day, they will end up here in Miletus. They didn't stop in Ephesus because they didn't have any business there. The ship was carrying cargo that needed to be offloaded in Miletus, and then they needed to load more cargo in Miletus. So Paul said, let's not stop there in Ephesus. That will just take up time. And remember, he's in a hurry. Now, what's interesting here, just a little bit of history, Chios here is the island. This was the birthplace of Homer. And Samos here was the birthplace of Pythagoras, Pythagoras of the Pythagorean theorem uh, fame that we all learned in geometry, you know, A squared plus B squared and a right triangle, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, the length of the hypotenuse. So this is uh, uh, where Pythagoras was from. And then they're going to leave there and go on, but they stop in Miletus for a meeting. Now this is what's described in verses 15 uh, to 16. In verse 16 we read, For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. But he knows he's going to be there for three or four days while they're offloading the cargo and reloading it, and so he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, it took a day for them to go to Ephesus in order to gather everybody together, and probably a day for everybody to get together, and a day to come back. And they had to walk there. Now, an elder is a presbyteros. And since they had to walk, peripateo is the Greek word for walking. This is why I call this the case of the peripatetic presbyteros, the peripatetic pres, uh Presbyters. So they are going to join him there. Now this is where we get into a little more uh, instruction on, on what is called by theologians ecclesiology, the study of the church. And, it's, and I haven't taught much over the years on ecclesiology. We've focused on many other areas of doctrine and scripture. But this is an important and a central passage for understanding some things about the leadership of a local church. The local church is the church of Ephesus. Ephesus has uh, uh, probably some, uh, there are one large church that met with one primary pastor or leader, but they also met in homes and broke up into smaller groups. Uh, various uh, men from the New Testament pastored that church at different times. Uh, no congregation is dependent upon only one man. 
What you have is uh, Paul taught them for two and a half years, and Paul went on. Later on, Timothy, his uh, young protege, became the pastor in Ephesus. And even later, John the Apostle became a leader of that church, and he became known as John the Elder, and he was in his uh, 80s at the time that he became the pastor of this particular congregation in Ephesus. So here's a congregation that over a period of uh, 30 or 40 years had at least three different pastors, maybe four. Apollos was there for some time as well, I believe. And so they came together under the leadership of these men, and there were others in the church who had the gift of pastor-teacher who were also indicated as elders. This is where it's important to get into the terminology here on the term for elder. Uh, The term presbyteros is one of three terms that is used to describe the leadership of a local church or a local congregation. It primarily emphasizes the idea of being older, and from there you get the idea of being mature. It's a same term that is used to describe leaders in a Jewish synagogue, leaders in cities that they are described as the elders. Usually they were over 50. Now, that doesn't mean that an elder or pastor in the New Testament was thought of as someone who should be over 50, but that was how they viewed someone who was uh, an elder in terms of the synagogue and in terms of, of, uh, in terms of city government. So this term presbyteros is where we get our term presbytery or presbyterian. Now, the presbyterian denomination... Uh, has a view of church government somewhat similar to the Episcopal hierarchy, the uh, form of government, uh, but it's not quite the same. The, the, the local church is ruled by a group of men called elders. Not all of them are teaching elders. They would view usually in a Presbyterian situation. One of them would be the teaching elder, but they are viewed as men who have equal leadership, equal authority for that congregation, sort of a team leadership concept. And many times you find uh, the concept of being an elder rule where they have little emphasis on congregational input or congregational vote. That's not always true. These things vary from group to group quite a bit. Some are more extreme than others. It just depends on how that local church has it has it set up. But beyond that, in the Presbyterian government, they'll have a group above that called the Senate, which is a collection of the leaders, the elders from several different uh, several different congregations. And so they, they don't emphasize simply the, the autonomy and the independence of a local church. It's tied to a synod. Whereas, uh, there's another form of Presbyterian government that doesn't have a hierarchy beyond the, the local church. And that became known in England as a congregational form. They believed everything else the same, but the congregational churches did not have any sort of allegiance to any organization beyond that of the local church and the local congregation. Everything else was pretty much the same, and they held to what was known as an elder form of government. But what we see here in the scriptures is the term presbyteros is used as a synonym for the word episkopos, which is the word for uh, for a bishop, and the old King James translated bishop or overseer. And if you look in our passage in Acts chapter 20, if you look down to verse 28, which we'll get to next time, 
he is talking to these elders, the presbyteroi, and Paul says to them, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, notice it's singular, among which the Holy Spirit has made you episcopoi. So the presbyteroi, the elders, are also seen as overseers or bishops. So these words are used interchangeably and synonymously. In fact, as we'll see next time, First uh, Timothy three one describes the qualifications for uh, overseers for a bishop. Starts off, let a bishop be. Okay, if anyone desires to be, be a bishop, let them be. And that's episcopoi, or in modern translations, translated overseers. And then there's a parallel passage in Titus 1.5. And Titus 1.5 has a list of those similar qualifications. And Paul tells Titus that you are to appoint elders, presbyteroi, in every city and then two verses later he, later, he identifies those elders as bishops. And then, as we see in this passage in Acts 20, 28, there's a third term used. He says, take heed to yourselves uh, that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. So there, that's the verb, poimino, which is the, and the noun form of that is the word that, where we get the word pastor. So the elder, the overseer, the same person, what's their function? Their function is to pastor. They have the gift of pastor teacher. So coming from a tradition that's been more influenced by a Baptist form of government, we refer to the, pat, the leader of the church, not as a priest, not as a bishop, not as an elder, but as the pastor. The, the pastoral imagery comes out of a shepherding term, and the role of the shepherd was to lead the flock and to see that they were properly fed and to protect them from enemies. That is a good model for the leader of a congregation, whether he's called an elder, a bishop, an overseer, or a pastor. His responsibility is to feed the congregation with the word of God and to protect them from false doctrine, false teaching, from those that would take advantage of them, and he is a leader. The primary, the primary imagery of a pastor is a leader. All of these are leadership roles, and that's the function of a pastor, and the pastor leads through teaching. That's the metaphor. He is a, has the gift of pastor teacher in Ephesians 4, 10, and 11. And so he leads through teaching the communication of the Word of God, which is what we also see in this passage. Now, Paul also refers to himself as a servant or a slave of God. In verse 18, he says, When they had come to him, that is, the uh, elders, the presbyteroi, the pastors, the leaders of the church in in, uh, Ephesus, when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I lived among you. So, so he is, part of the way he established his credentials was his own personal lifestyle. He wasn't there to lord his authority over the congregation. He was concerned about their welfare and their spiritual growth, and that he was there to serve the Lord with all humility. And the word for serving the Lord is the Greek word duleo, which is the word describing the function of a slave, not just a servant. A servant takes a position voluntarily, 
Paul recognizes that once we trust in Christ, we become a slave of righteousness, Romans chapter 6. And so he is there completely under the authority and direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says he's serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Now, Paul went through, we just get a hint of what he went through in some of the episodes that we've studied in Scripture. But he I, he lists these, he enumerates them in 2 Corinthians 6 and in 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians in 6, 6, 4, and 5, he says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Here it's not uh, duleo or, or the noun form doulos, it's diakonos as a servant. That's the word we from which we get our word deacon. Uh, deacon is a separate category of leadership in a local church. It's a category of service in the local church. And Paul uses that as a term for ministry. Uh, he said, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes. That means flogging, flagellation, um, in imprisonments. In tumults, riots, like the riot we just studied that took place in, in, um, uh, in Ephesus. In labors, he had to work as a tent maker, and he chose to work as a tent maker through much of his ministry. In sleeplessness, nights when he did not sleep because he was uh, involved in either he's in jail or he's involved in helping people, in whatever the circumstance, because of the ministry, he did not sleep. Uh, in fastings, that's going without food. Not necessarily for the purpose, for a spiritual purpose, but just out of not having. Second Corinthians eleven twenty three and following, he expands on it a little bit. He starts off with a rhetorical question because there are these false teachers that are claiming to have authority uh, over him. And so that's how he starts. He says, well, are they ministers of Christ? Well, no, they're not. And then he gives some of his uh, answers. He said, I speak as a fool. That is, I speak uh, foolishly in this rhetorical question. Of course, we all know they're really not. He says, I am more. Listen to the, what I have done. You're, these, these false teachers have not given of themselves for you as I have. He said, in labors, I've been more abundant. In stripes, that's getting uh, flagellated, flogged. In, in stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently, in deaths, often surrounded by death. Perhaps there were those in Paul's entourage that lost their life in martyrdom. It's, we're not told about that. But he emphasizes that there were death. Maybe there were some that lost their life in shipwrecks that he mentions. We don't know. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That's in addition to the flogging he mentioned in the previous verse. This is just when the Jews flogged him. Now, the Mosaic law prohibits giving anybody more than 40 lashes. So uh, the rabbis would always only give 39 according to the uh, rabbinical law just in case they miscounted. So they didn't want to make a mistake and give uh, more than 40. That's why it's 40 stripes minus 1. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, that would be floods, 
in perils of robbers, uh, highwaymen along the uh, along his travel routes, in perils of my own countrymen, the Jews that followed him from city to city to stir up riots and opposition against him, in perils of the Gentiles as well. So he's not just picking on the Jews, but every all the people who reject the gospel are hostile to Paul. And perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, and that's just the, what he's saying here is besides all the normal problems we have in life, this is what I've gone through on top of that. Uh, I don't know any pastors or missionaries or anyone in my life that even comes close to experiencing uh, anything quite like this. Uh, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So he is clearly going through uh, tr- trials, and much of it instigated by the plotting. Literally, it should be translated uh, that which uh, in the trial, uh, tears and trials which happened to me by the plots. It's a plural noun, the plots of the Jews, not just their action of plotting or conspiring, but the plots again and again and again, which were against uh, the Apostle Paul. So this just gives us a glimpse of his pastoral ministry, his apostolic ministry. And next time uh, we'll come back, we'll look at the warnings uh, given to the peripatetic presbyters, and we will also summarize the, all the different verbs that he uses here describing the pastoral ministry, teaching, encouraging, uh, proclaiming, all these different terms, and that helps us understand what the role and function of a pastor is. And it's often much different from the cultural expectation or denominational expectations that are put upon many pastors today. So they cannot fulfill the kind of ministry that God uh, gave them, uh, God desires them to have, because they're too busy pleasing people with, with wrong-headed ideas about what a pastor is supposed to do. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that the ministry is your ministry. It's not our ministry. It's not the ministry that uh, depends upon the views of a local church or it's not the ministry depending upon the views of a, of a denomination, but that there, there are strict guidelines given in Scripture, the primary focus of which is teaching, training, instruction so that people can learn how you would have them to live and how they can face and handle the circumstances of life on the basis of your word, that we may accurately divide, accurately understand your word, and make it a part of our thinking and our living. Father, we pray that you challenge us with all these things. In Christ's name, amen.